Joseph. So, if you would please stand as we read Nahum chapter 2. That we believe these are the very words of God. The scatterer has come up against you. <clears throat> Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. Let's pray. Father, you have made a way for us to stand in your presence. And we are holy and we are clean because of the blood of Jesus. And God, this morning... Would you be magnified? Not the type of magnification that makes a small thing big. But the type that shows how big something really is. Would you show us how mighty you are, God? Would you show us your jealousy and your wrath and your vengeance? And your hatred of sin? your love for your people. And would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, would you, by that very same Spirit, God, speak to us, be heard, and conform us to the image of Christ even more. And Father, if there be anyone within the sound of my voice who does not know Jesus, who has not confessed their need for a Savior because they are sinners, would you, Holy Spirit, grant life Give life, new life, new birth, so that that person, those people, might repent and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Help us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, man. I don't say this to exalt us or say we're better than anybody else, but all over church settings this morning, there are lovely promises of God and beautiful scriptures being read that are encouraging and powerful and beautiful sounding, and, and this is not that. Now, it, it hopefully you'll see that it is very encouraging, very empowering, But getting into the feels of it, it feels a little heavy, right? I mean, we're talking about moaning and beating breasts and destruction and devastation and mistresses being carried away. And and I just can't help but think again and again and again and again. There is so much about this God that we're not comfortable with. 
And he wants us to know him. And he's good. Is God good? Yes. Can God do or be evil? No. Can God do anything that is unjust? No. And that's really good news. Consequences. How many, of you, how many times have you, have you done something and, man, that, that felt good, I liked it, yay, and then you've got to face the consequences of it. And you're like, oh, shoot. Don't like the consequences. I love this. I saw this this week. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. Stupid's not a nice word. And sometimes we're stupid. Sometimes we're a monkey with a stick about to hit a lion. I can do it. It'll be fun. Or somebody say, do it, bro. All right. (laughs) Let's see what happens. Monkey, stick, lion. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. That's a bad decision. And the consequences are not going to be nice. Verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. Okay, so remember, this book of Nahum, these three chapters, is a vision that this man Nahum saw regarding the Lord's judgment against Nineveh. The same Nineveh that Jonah had went to decades before, maybe a century before, to preach repentance. And they repented, but now the Lord's judgment is coming upon Nineveh, these some hundred years later or more. This Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the most dominant, fearsome, powerful empire on the face of the earth at the time. That empire had devastated the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., dispersing or annihilating the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel that had made up that kingdom. And God, in His jealousy, we saw last week, is taking vengeance on Nineveh, pouring out His wrath on them. Why? Well, we're going to see that in this chapter and some in the third chapter. And we're going to see also what that jealous, vengeful wrath looks like. And that's the bulk of this chapter today. And God himself is going to paint a picture of words to describe what will happen when the wrath falls on Nineveh. And it starts here in verse 1 saying, The scatterer has come up against you. So who is the scatterer? Which I'm really glad I don't have to say that word a bunch. Scatterer. Well, remember, God is taking his vengeance on Nineveh. So is he the scatterer? Well, the answer is yes and no. Okay? God is pouring out his vengeance, but he's using people to do it. He's using an army. History tells us that in 612 B.C., which is some 30, 40, 50 years from this prophecy, after this prophecy, that an army of Babylonians and Medes carried out the wrath of God on Nineveh by attacking it, overtaking it, obliterating it. So this scatterer, which other versions translates as attacker, is this unified army of Medes and Babylonians. Now note this. Neither the Medes nor the Babylonians were Yahweh worshipers. They're pagans. And God's using them to pour out His wrath on the Ninevites. That's interesting, right? The scatterer has come up against you, Nineveh. This mighty, brutal army of men who hate you, Nineveh, who hate the Assyrian Empire, 
are seeking to establish their dominance in the world over this long-standing dynasty that has been marked by brutal wars and devastation of other cultures and lands. The scatterer has come to your house, Nineveh. And that's a bold move. This mighty city, this mighty capital seemed invincible. You could say one does not simply walk into Nineveh. That will not be the last Lord of the Rings reference you hear today. But this army is a scattering and attacking, and the word could also mean breaking army. So, God says, man the ramparts. A rampart is a protective barrier, a fortification where armies could fight from and defend a city. If an army was coming up against a city, the ramparts would be manned and the home team would fight from the walls, the higher ground, Obi-Wan might say. Man the ramparts, God tells the Ninevites. Go ahead. He goes on to say, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. As the army of Nineveh mounts the walls of the city, and I can almost like, who's attacking us here? Who would have the audacity or the stupidity to come into our house? Because this place is impregnable. And so he's like, go ahead. Get up on the ramparts. Collect all your strength. And God tells them to watch the road. Now we said last week that the Tigris River served as a natural barrier for the city. So the only way in was the road. So watch the road. You don't have to worry about people coming the river way. So from your wall, watch the road. They're coming. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. And these Assyrians, these Ninevites loved a good battle. So they're like, all right, let's do this. Gather whatever gumption you have and make sure you're ready to do whatever you need to do. Be ready to do what you love to do. Fight, slaughter, conquer. God says you're going to need all your strength in this battle. And ultimately, even that, all of Nineveh's great strength will not be enough. Why? Verse 2. Watch this. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the, as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now, don't miss this. This is very interesting. Gather all your strength. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. For... For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Now that needs a little unraveling, right? Why is God bringing this army up against Nineveh? Why is God destroying Nineveh? Just because they're mean? Because they worship false gods? Yeah, and yeah. But again, remember... God announces His jealousy and vengeance and wrath at the beginning... Of this prophecy. Well, what's he jealous for? Who is the vengeance for? Is it for himself? For sure it is. But how is the invisible God seen in the world that he created and rules over? He is seen through his people. And with the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel now gone, the people of God. That's left is Judah, this tiny southern kingdom with two tribes, really a tribe and a half, maybe two and a half, depends on who who says what. And God says here that he is jealously pouring out his vengeful wrath to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Now let's dig in here a little bit. We spoke in the introductory message two weeks ago of the United Kingdom of Israel reaching its peak under King David and then his son Solomon. Solomon, they said that silver was so common it was considered like rocks. Precious metal, not in this peak glory of the the united kingdom of Israel. We just use silver as rocks. It's not worth anything. They'd grown to their fullest size. They were in their greatest glory. But right after Solomon died, Israel is split into two. The northern ten tribes making up the nation of Israel and the two southern tribes being called Judah. And then like we've already said, the northern kingdom gets decimated by Assyria in 722 BC. So this once great nation, which was a a dominant force in the world, is now 
Israel is what we're talking about, is now a remnant really with only Judah surviving and them only surviving by the divine intervention of God slaying 185,000 people in one night. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. But even after that divine uh, intervention, they feel the pressure and the effects of this mighty Assyrian empire hanging over their heads like a guillotine that could fall at any moment. These guys could come back. God could choose not to kill 185,000 people in one night, and they could take us and decimate us just like they did our northern neighbors. And they were scared. And they were kind of like the Israelites in the book of Judges before Gideon delivered them. They're kind of hiding. They're kind of, they got their head down. They're, they're not shining the glory of God. They're scared and they're worried. But the jealous God is now saying that he is going to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Now there's a few times in the Old Testament, especially in prophecy, where God refers to the nation of Judah... As Jacob. There's definitely precedent for Jacob to equal Judah. And God seems to be saying here that he's going to restore the majesty of the southern kingdom of Judah, what's left of the people of God, to be like that of the majesty of the United Nation of Israel at its peak. And his jealous wrath is being poured out to remove the threats to Judah. And the greatest of those threats at this time is Assyria, whose seat of power is in Nineveh. And why is God going to do this? For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And these plunderers are obviously the Assyrians, those plunderers who have plundered Jacob slash Judah, and in so doing have, quote, ruined their branches. That's a botanical analogy, right? The damage that the Assyrians had inflicted on Judah before God stepped in and killed 185,000 of them overnight had ruined their branches like a tree that can't bear fruit anymore. Bare, struggling to survive, and lacking potential to grow or flourish. But God has something to say about that. The damage done will be negated, yes, but it will also be overcome to the point of Judah being glorious again, fruitful again. This is part of God's plan and a reason for his vengeance against these plunderers. This is a big verse here. Verse 2 is really big. God is giving his reasons and explaining the greater purpose of his plans. It's about his glory being shown through his people. Note that. That's important. Next, God turns back to his words directly pointing to Nineveh. Verses 3 and 4. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. If this was like a movie scene, it would be like quick cuts, like a camera moving quick, and you're seeing different stuff. It's like, oh, no, this is, oh, the bad things are happening. These two verses describe the invading army that is coming upon Nineveh. Nahum is describing his vision of this mass army descending on Nineveh. The details are vivid and amazingly accurate for what would come to pass in 612 B.C., again, a few decades after Nahum announced it. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Commentator Kenneth Barker explains this this way, quote, The city's attackers wore red uniforms and carried red shields, literally. Uh, the two words for red are different, as indicated in the NIV. Both the Medes and the Babylonians were associated with red. And he gives a scripture reference, Ezekiel twenty three fourteen. We'll look at that in a minute. He goes on to say, whether the shields looked red because they were covered with dyed leather or because the shields were made of copper and reflected the sun is unknown. The point is that the attackers looked powerful and invincible. End of quote. Now that quote in Ezekiel says this, but she carried her whoring, talking about Israel, further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians and probably some of the Medes too. They're portrayed, these people are, in these images in vermilion. If you didn't know what vermilion looks like, there it is. 
The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion. So the shields and the clothes are red. And I can't help but think there's a blood imagery in that too. Maybe shields and uniforms soaked in blood after a rout. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day when he musters them. We have tanks today. They had chariots then. Okay? Chariots were mighty war machines in that time. And those metal chariots, Nahum says, glisten in the sun. Not wooden, because some people had wooden chariots. These are metal chariots. Mighty metal chariots. Red soldiers, shiny metal attack. Shiny metal chariots. chariots. The cypress spears are brandished, Nahum says. Now get this. Years and years before the attack, Nahum is even naming the wood that these spears are made of. God is giving us details. Cypress spears. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. This means that they're in the city, which would be catastrophic for Nineveh. Their strength had been in keeping people out of the city, barricaded behind the great walls and the mighty river. But these chariots are in the veins and arteries of the city itself, and they gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Part of the value of chariots was their speed, blazing through the streets, cutting down down all in their path, running over them, cutting them down with swords, spears, just through the streets, everybody running. It's mayhem, pandemonium. And these chariots and the people falling. And the reflection of the sun is shimmering in terror through these chariots of metal, blindingly fast and balefully potent. How does Nineveh respond? Verse 5. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Again, it's kind of tough to, to gauge and keep up with what verse is referring to who as you go back and forth here. There was a reference to Judah before, then the invading army, and now we come back to Nineveh for verse 5. How can we tell? Well, God had summoned them to the wall. And here he, Nineveh, remembers his officers. In the midst of the attack, the army called to the wall, checks in to see how its officers are doing. They stumble as they do. They hasten to the wall. Looks like maybe they're a little bit late getting there, huh? Rumbling, bumbling, stumbling. They're panicked. They're unsure and unsteady as they hasten to the wall to join the battle and to gauge what's going on. And when they get to the wall, what do they see? They see that the siege tower is set up. Again, think Lord of the Rings. Those tall towers at the Battle of Gondor carrying troops and weapons that help the attackers either scale or mount the wall or just go over it. And that that siege tower is set up and troops come pouring onto and through the wall. That's what the officers see when they get there. In verses 6 through 8. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh's like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry. But none turns back. Uh-oh. One last Lord of the Rings. The Ents have entered the fray, it would seem. The river's been unleashed. What has just happened here is something that was mentioned in last week's passage and message. In chapter 1, it had said in verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And from that I had mentioned that there was a literal flood that had caused a break in the walls of the city near the river. And we see that here. The river gates are opened. Professor George Rawlison describes this in his book, Ancient Monarchies, which sounds just like a riveting account. Quote, At the northwest angle of Nineveh, there was a sluice or floodgate intended mainly to keep the water of the Corsu, which ordinarily filled the city moat, from flowing off too rapidly into the Tigris, but probably intended also to keep back the water of the Tigris when that stream rose above its common level. Luke Stevens is going, yes, I get this completely. (laughs) 
a sudden and great rise in the Tigris would necessarily endanger this gate, and if it give way beneath the pressure, a vast torrent of water would rush up the moat along and against the northern wall, which may have been undermined by its force and have fallen in. End of quote. With these river gates opened, and with the main gate being overrun by the Medes and the Babylonians, and their chariots already running roughshod through the streets, Nineveh was doomed. Verse 6 goes on to say, the palace melts away. Now, you might think that that means the palace got knocked down. There's no indication that the main palace of the city was destroyed by the flood. So this is probably an allusion to the seat of power, the nobles all panicking, their hope lost and their hearts melting away. They would know that if those river gates had been destroyed and if the flood was powerful enough, they stood no chance. Its mistress is stripped The palace's mistress, its, is the palace. Inferring its queen has been stripped. And not to mention the king, who was the sign of power and authority. Where's he? Well, check this out. (laughs) Why does it mention the mistress and not the king? James Boyce writes this in his commentary. Quote, The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, which is a great name, Diodorus Siculus, says that the river not only broke down the walls of the city, it also inundated part of it. At this point, the king, Sardanapalus, remembering an oracle to the effect that Nineveh would only fall when the river itself declared war against it, believed that the oracle was fulfilled and abandoned any hope of saving himself. Now watch this. Boyce goes on to say, The king built a gigantic funeral pyre in the royal precincts, heaped up large quantities of gold and costly clothes, shut his concubines and eunuchs in a chamber he had made in the midst of the pyre, and then burned himself, his family, his concubines and eunuchs, and the palace. End of quote. Okay, that feels like Lord of the Rings too. The king saw the river coming and he's like, this is it. We're done. We're finished. And he burned himself and his stuff up. It seems that the king was not available to be stripped. He ended himself. And the mention of the mistress may not mean the queen, but she's not mentioned in that description of the self-burning madness. The use of mistress there may just be emblematic of Nineveh itself. A lot of times a city or nation is referenced using a woman's name, Rahab, Ariel, the great whore Babylon, and others. Whether it's the mistress of the city or the city or empire itself being called mistress, the idea of stripping is pretty clear, isn't it? A person or a city being stripped is not a good thing. Nor is being carried off. This is delocating and relocating at the direction of the invaders. You will not be in your home anymore. You will go where we send you, stripped and taken captive, which the Babylonians were known to do. They would take their captives, strip them, and march them to Babylon. Sometimes hooked together by hooks in their noses and other places. You will not be in your home anymore. You'll go where we send you. Then there's the picture of the lesser women, the slave girls, lamenting, pining, mourning, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Again, a very vivid picture. Lamenting, moaning, beating their breasts. These are visible, audible, and terrible signs of distress. This is not just an, oh no, we don't like this type of moment. It is woe and catastrophe. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual distress beyond any ability to be comforted. Being stripped, carried off, lamenting, moaning, beating their breasts. And verse 8 shows their complete defeat and powerlessness. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! they cry. But none turns back. I see this like somebody in the midst of all of this in the streets. Y'all stop! Stop this! Trying to get the foreigners to stop standing in the streets or at the door of the palace or their home yelling, Stop! But just being ignored, trampled on, carried off. There is no stopping. There is no halting. There is no turning back. None turns back. Because... The Lord God of Israel is pouring out His jealous wrath on these people. The 
this, this invading army under the divine direction of God, this army is having its way in the city, wreaking havoc unopposed. Halt! Halt, they cry, but none turns back. Which leads to, logically, verse 9. Plunder the silver! Plunder the gold! There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Now imagine the opulence of the seat of power of the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. The wealth, the goods, the abundance. And then imagine a conquering army seizing all of that for themselves individually and collectively. Plunder the silver! Plunder the gold! There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. It's like an estate sale where everything's free. Imagine the mayhem. Doors open at 8 a.m. Like people are popping their knuckles at 7.58 and they're digging in. Assyria was so rich. This is where you say, how rich was it? Well, when the king burned himself and his family, it says there were 150 golden beds and as many golden tables in this pile that he was burning, and quite a number of other gold, silver, and precious stones, along with all the stuff that he just burnt himself up with. I don't think we can imagine how much stuff there was there. Now free for the taking for the marauders and soldiers of the invading army. Nahum says there is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. You just couldn't take it all. There was too much. But these guys are doing their best, it appears. And those efforts leading to their elation was juxtaposed against the despair of the once proud and mighty Ninevites. Verse 10. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. There's a great memory verse if y'all want to write that one down and put it on your mirror and look at it every morning. Nahum communicates the scene, we could call this Monday morning, I guess. Nahum communicates the scene that is being conveyed in the once great city, the once mighty fortress. Desolate. It means empty, to be hollow. They've been gutted, completely emptied of their majesty, completely emptied of their beauty, wealth, and favor. Desolation and ruin. It's as bad as it could be. Not just not beautiful anymore, but of no value, no use. It's ruined. This place is a wasteland. God had said in chapter 1 that he was going to make their grave for they were vile. Well, we see that engravement here. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. The emotional responses are seen in physical manifestations here. Hearts melt. You ever received bad news and your heart just melted? Overwhelmed with grief and fear and shock? Too much to handle? Have you ever been in a situation where literally your knees shook or knocked together? You're standing in front of a bunch of people speaking in public? Or worse? You ever been in that position? You just couldn't control it and everybody can see your legs shaking? This is that on steroids. Knees knocking together, just not supporting you like the good joints they're supposed to be. It's awful. It's a feeling of complete helplessness. Anguish in all loins. We speak of butterflies in our stomach or a knot in our gut. This is that times a hundred. All faces grow pale. The blood's drained from their faces. They're in complete and utter shock. Their physical bodies cannot process nor handle what their senses are communicating to them. They're overwhelmed in every sense of the word at this desolation, this terror that their nation had imposed on so many others. And now it's being imposed on them. And that terrorizing of others is indicated in 11 and 12. It's powerful. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. There's a powerful picture here. God is saying that this army, under his sovereign direction, the Medes and the Babylonians, has entered into the very den of the lion. 
And as they do, they manhandle the lion. This lion had went about and killed and torn flesh and taken what it wanted back to its den to feed its lionesses and their cubs. They had enjoyed the bounty provided by the terror and strength of the apex predator. No one challenges the apex predator. Nobody hits the lion with a stick. Right, monkey? Nobody does that. Let's see if I can get this lion fired up. That's going to be fun. Nobody does that. The lion dominates. The lion intimidates. The lion takes what it wants. And those back at home enjoy the fat and the bounty that the king of the jungle provides. They don't think, the lionesses or the cubs, they don't think of those who lost their lives for what to them has become what they have. They have all they want and even more filling their cave with all they have. They'll never use it all. They wouldn't really miss it if it was gone, but it's theirs and they enjoy having it. They enjoy being the haves instead of the have-nots. All is at ease in the lion's den. Nobody disturbs the lion's den. And God says, where is it? Nineveh is that den, and I'm sending my sickle of wrath into that very den to plunder it and wipe it clean. There's no regard for the lion's strength, or the lion's might, or the lion's teeth, or the lion's roar here. God's not afraid of the lion. And he's going to gut that lion in its very own den, lionesses and cubs and all. All the pomp and might of the lion is decimated in the presence of the God that they have to stand accountable to. And God says clearly in verse 13 what that accounting looks like. Our last verse. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall, develop, shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. Now note this. Now all the talk of armies and others is gone. God says, Behold, I, I am against you, Nineveh. You figure that if the sovereign God of the universe is against you that you're in trouble... Yeah, it's bad news for sure if you are an enemy of the Lord God Almighty. And he is referred, actually refers to himself, or I don't know if Nahum throws that in, I don't know, as the Lord of hosts. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is mighty in battle. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord of hosts is he. That word is Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth, his name, the Lord of hosts. We sang last week that the God of angel armies is always by our side. Well, the Net Bible translates Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, as the Lord of heaven's armies. And in their explanatory note here, the Net Bible, the editors say, quote, The title, Lord of heaven's armies, Lord Sabaoth, pictures God as the sovereign king who has at his disposal a multitude of attendants, messengers, and warriors to do his bidding. In some contexts, like this one, they say, the military dimension of his rulership is highlighted. In this case, the title pictures him as one who leads armies into battle against his enemies. End of quote. Oh my. Who's at the front of this army? It is God himself who is leading the charge. No lion, no king, no army, no fortress is able to withstand the might and fury of the Lord God Almighty leading his hosts into battle. And here in Nineveh, God says he will burn their chariots in smoke. Again, if you remember, chariots are signs of military might. God says there's smoke when I show up. He then says that the sword shall devour your young lions. Those cubs who had only fed on the prey that their mighty daddy had brought them will die by the sword. The quote-unquote innocence of Nineveh will feel the full force of God's wrath too. 
And God says he will cut off their prey from the earth. That just means that no one else will be the prey of Nineveh anymore ever. He's making an end of Nineveh, leading them to the grave so they will never have prey anymore. The prey is cut off because they are cut off. And watch this. And the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. Hard to send messengers when you're not there anymore, right? And I can't help but think here again of our old buddy the Rabshakeh we mentioned last week, right? That voice and voices like it will no longer be heard from Nineveh again. Shouting your brash, violent threats to those you say will soon be eating their dung and drinking their urine. Rabshakeh, not anymore. No more Rabshakehs. No more messengers. You are desolate. I, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, proclaim it. And I lead the charge against you myself. And you will not stand. Quite a chapter. Vividly conveyed and clearly seen what's going to happen to Nineveh some 50, 60 years after this prophecy. Behold your God. Well, that's not my God. Then your God's not the God of the Bible. So how do we apply this? We'll be looking at three D's this morning. We're 3D. I'm taking you to a whole other dimension this morning. Three D's. Damage, devil, and disturb. Damage, devil, and disturb. Application. The first D is damage. Oh, that we could see the damage the effects of sin. Assyria had sinned grievously, raising itself up to be like the Most High. It demanded glory. It demanded obedience. It decimated you if you didn't line up with what it wanted. And God said, you can't do that. I'm going to cut you down. Because... You're sinning and you're sinners. Please hear what I'm about to say. God hates sin. So what? Where is this God? That hates sin. It really is not sin if I like it. It's not sin if I enjoy it. It's not sin if it fits my idea of love. It's not sin if it makes my life better. And God says, I hate it. God hates sin. Second point here under damage and sin. Sin always brings collateral damage. Your sin is not just personal sin. The lion went out and tore and destroyed and brought back the prey to its lionesses and to the cubs. And guess who else got destroyed in the siege of Nineveh? The ones who had not partaken of the siege and the prey, but the ones who enjoyed the bounty that came from it. Fathers, mothers, watch yourself because your sin will affect your children. Look around this room this morning. Your sin affects every person sitting here this morning. And sometimes our sin is so destructive and that it doesn't hurt us, it just hurts other people. Ultimately, all sin hurts us, by the way. 
Because ultimately, all sin leads to ultimate destruction. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord said, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Because it doesn't taste very good. You shall not eat it because, let's just reason together, I've just got better stuff for you. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, hey Eve, did God really say, that you would die if you ate this fruit? Yes, he did. He said we shouldn't even touch this tree. Eve, you're, you're not going to die if you eat this fruit. See, what's going to happen is you're going to be like God. And you're going to know good from evil. And that's good, Eve. And Eve sees, hey, you know what this fruit is? It's, it looks good. It's going to make me wise, crunch, it even tastes good. Hey, Adam, come check this out. And look, I didn't die. Adam's like, cool. Go back to playing my Xbox now. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam, where are you? Um, well, see, I was naked, and I heard you, and who told you that you were naked? Have you partaken of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to? Now, listen, God knew that he had. God's not some clueless grandpa. What are you doing? God's coming down to say, you did it. And now comes the curse. And what is that curse? The curse is sin to every single person that comes from your line, which is all of us. Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, unbelievers. Sin brings death. That's the damage that sin does. Death. There is death in our world because there is sin in our world. God hates sin. Your sin affects you and everybody around you. And that sin leads to the damage of death. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual death. Do not play with sin. Do not rationalize your sin. Do not act like your sin is not a big deal. Believer or unbeliever. Sin does damage, and the damage that sin does is death. So damage. Now devil. I like this one. Not because it's clever, because it's awesome. The devil. Can't help but reading through here and thinking about this lion and his lionesses and their cubs Referring to a proud, arrogant enemy who thinks that he can't be defeated. First Peter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. What's the call? Run? What's the call? Cower in front of him and let him devour you? Look at this church. Resist him. Don't just accept your sin and I can't help it and this is how I am and this is how God made me and this is who I am and I can't help it because I enjoy these things. Or you know what, I'm just tired of fighting. I'm not winning this battle. Resist him. Go into the lion's den. Firm in your faith. Not in your ability to do these things. But after you suffer a little while, after you wrestle with this sin, after you're fighting this lion tooth and nail, what happens? God shows up. And He Himself leads the armies into battle with and for you. And He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What's your part in this church? Resist Him. Firm in the faith. But he's a lion. Anybody ever been close to a lion? Nobody? We were in Africa, West Africa, I think it was in in Ghana. And they had old retired lions at this one reserve. And, And we probably got as close as, I don't know, me to that piano, maybe even a little closer. And there were big, thick bars. No glass, but big thick bars. And you could see the lion. You could smell him. You could hear him. And we're all standing there talking. And that lion went, I mean, and let me tell you what, it was scary. I could be vivid there and I won't. It was incredibly scary. My brain knew there was no chance of that lion getting out of those thick bars. But that line scared the snot out of me. Just roaring. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Faith in who? Yourself? Absolutely not. Firm in my faith that there is a God, the God of all grace. And grace is not just about being forgiven. Grace is about a power that God gives us to overcome. Grace is God at work. Standing firm in your faith, resisting the devil, knowing that this God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, which means you're going to make it, by the way, that same God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, James, the brother of Jesus says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and that lion will flee from you. Yes! We need that. This is not about you doing enough to be good enough, to try hard enough to maybe eke out a victory here and there. That's not the Christian life. Christian life is about looking that lion in the face, hearing it roar, being scared to stinking death, and saying, my faith is in the Lord, the God of angel armies, who's going to strengthen, establish, and confirm me. So, devil, I'm resisting you. And after that resisting, he flees. The lion tucks his tail between his legs, and he runs away from you. Listen, church, you ain't got to be afraid of the devil. And he's scary. And you ain't got to be afraid of him. So damage, devil, and finally disturb. This passage today, Nahum chapter 2, does it disturb you? Worry you? Scare you? Make you feel like you don't know God at all, maybe? Maybe? Who is this God leading armies into battle and 
vaporizing into smoke chariots and carrying off mistresses and slaves and people scared and the blood drained from their face and their knees knocking together at the fury of this God. Does that disturb you? Listen to me very, very, very carefully. That wrath that God poured out on Nineveh is nothing compared to the wrath that he's going to pour out on sinners at the end of all things. You have no idea the terrors and the horrors of eternal hell. You're like, oh, now you're just being backwoods country preacher boy now. Death, hell, and damnation. It's biblical. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God. Nineveh times infinity is revealed from heaven against who? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, these men, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, these bad things that people are doing, mentioned earlier, the wrath of God comes upon the devil. Yeah. Comes upon also the sons of disobedience. And you know what? We all are born sons of disobedience. Every single one of us. And God is just in this wrath being poured out upon these sons of disobedience. If you are not in Christ, nothing can or will separate you from the wrath of God. No fortress, no wall, no den of lions, no strength, no excuse. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And if you are not in Christ, that's you. But there is therefore now no condemnation, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is one way to escape the wrath that is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and that is to be found in Christ. To confess your sins, know that you're a sinner, and ask for forgiveness that comes through the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God the Son, pouring out His life unto death, His flesh being broken, His blood being poured out as the wrath of God for your sins was poured upon Him. And if you are in Christ, watch this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or lion or army? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 starts and finishes in Christ. So does the wrath of God. The wrath of God ends in Christ and nowhere else. This Nahum chapter 2, this is for God's enemies. It's not for God's people. Don't be afraid of the wrath of God if you're in Christ. This is to comfort God's people. 
that he's going to make an end of all of his enemies, all of our enemies. If God is for us, who can be against us? But there's only one escape from that wrath, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. What will you do with that work and the person of Christ today? Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. And you have given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Show us, Father, the damage that sin has done in the world and the damage that sin is doing to us. And may we confess and repent of our sins. May we resist the devil, firm in our faith that you're going to deliver us. And may the truth of your wrath not disturb us, but may it comfort us. Knowing that you are doing what brings you glory and us good. Knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love you and who are the called according to your purposes. And Father, if there are those who are under your wrath here today, Again, Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict them of their sins. Raise them to new life in Christ so that they might be convicted of their sins. Confess those sins. Flee from those sins into the shelter of the person of Jesus Christ. May they place their faith in him and his finished work for their salvation and the forgiveness and deliverance from those sins that will destroy them if they don't forsake them. We ask for your help and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stand eat with us if you can.